Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Today we're speaking with Molly Ola Pinney, the CEO and founder of the Global Autism Project. She's also the number one supporter of this podcast. You'll hear Molly give a history of our organization, highlighting important turning points over the last 17 years. As an employee, it's always fun for me to hear about how the organization has evolved, from the heart of a 23-year-old with a mission to change the world to a global movement involving almost 20 countries. Molly tells us of her early years in Ghana and also reflects on how the understanding of autism in Africa has changed since then. Although the stigma is still real, there has been an increase in the awareness that autism is not caused by evil spirits. Molly explains how our Skill Corps volunteer program works and why it differs from volunteerism. We describe the relationships we have with our partners and share stories from our first global summit held in August of 2019. Molly illustrates how decisive action and leadership helped her to respond appropriately to the coronavirus crisis back in January. We discuss the impact this has had on the work we do as an organization and why she sees this pause as an opportunity. We also talk about how traveling internationally with Skill Corps has actually prepared some of our volunteers to better cope with the current climate of uncertainty. In this episode, discover what's possible when the answer to how is yes. For more information about our work, please visit globalautismproject.org. And now, I present you, Molly Ola Pinney. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Today's a special day. I'm speaking with the CEO and founder of the Global Autism Project, who also happens to be my boss, Molly Ola Pinney. Welcome to the show, Molly. Thank you. I think it's quite appropriate that we're recording this episode on April 2nd, World Autism Awareness Day. And with all that's happening around the world during the COVID-19 pandemic, we're reminded that even after all this passes, autism will still be here. Absolutely. And we'll discuss later how the crisis has impacted the work that we do at the Global Autism Project. But first, it would be great to give our listeners a brief background of how the idea for the podcast came about. And yeah. I remember when I first brought up the idea of the podcast to you in November of last year, I was having lunch one day and I happened to be listening to a podcast about autism. And I thought, hey, we should have an, a podcast for the organization and when I pitched it to you, you didn't hesitate to say yes. And you immediately gave me the green light to go for it. Yeah, I was so excited. It had been one of those ideas that had sort of, you know, I've been guests on a lot of podcasts and I sort of felt like we probably have enough to talk about as an organization, but we're busy right now. We're busy right now. And I think what I was mostly excited about is that obviously you came into our work as a skill core member, as a clinical team member. And I just thought how cool to have somebody who's so close to the work be able to share what we're up to. So yeah. And I, I like projects. I like big ideas and I knew you'd crush it. So yeah. <laughs> yes, go for it. <laughs> I was surprised when I, when I said yes before you finished, but yeah. Right. Here, and we here we are. Here we are. Exactly. Yeah, here we are. You never know. <laughs> We're going to cover 
a wide range of topics on this show from a variety of different guests. We'll have self-advocates, parents, and professionals from all over the world. And I'm so interested to hear about how people overcome obstacles and what breakthroughs they might have along the way. Yeah, awesome. So I wanted to ask you, what does Autism Knows No Borders mean to you? You know, I'm sure we'll talk a bit about how the organization got started, but really when I think about this idea of no borders, I think about something that impacts you wherever in the world you live. You know, I get emails all the time at two and three in the morning. So no borders in terms of the time of day. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and all the continents of the world, and all the countries of the world, and all the corners of the world. And so I think there's that, but there's also this idea that the autistic community can only accomplish so much, and we're breaking out of it. I've been doing this for 17 years, so we're breaking out of that idea. But when I think about no borders, I also think in terms of potential, in terms of what's possible for people with autism. And for me, that's really the aspect of our motto that resonates more. It's sort of, there's no borders and there's no borders to what's possible. So yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. it. And, it's, and the history of that is many years ago, when we first started the organization, a guy I was working with at the time, who was also one of my best friends from when I was four years old, said, Hey, do you think this sounds good? And I was like, yeah, it sounds kind of good. Um, and now it's trademarked. It's all over everything we have. It's, um, you know, um, and it's autism knows no borders. Fortunately, neither do we. And the idea, not only that we're going to go to places around the world, which is of course the work that we do, but also that we're never going to put a ceiling or a border around what's possible for the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about how you started the organization and what we do now. First, could you share your journey of how you began working with the autistic population? Yeah, definitely. I had completed an AmeriCorps program in Seattle, Washington, and a neighbor said, we have a friend whose child has been suspended from school and his mom is looking for a new school. Could you maybe babysit for him? And I thought, yeah, I'll do that. I'm, you know, taking time off from college. I've finished this AmeriCorps program. Not totally sure what's next. Sure. I'll babysit. And I met the family and I met the kid and I loved the kid and he was so cool and so fun. And his mom asked me if I'd maybe be willing to learn to be an ABA therapist. And at the time I had read, I'd been studying um, behavioral neuroscience. So I'd read a little bit about Lovas and ABA. And I thought, I mean, maybe, I don't really know what it is. And I was all set to say, no, I don't think that's going to be a fit. And I went home that day and they called and I said, yeah, I would, I would love to do that. That sounds really interesting. And part of the reason that I took it on is because that family was moving to Ghana in about a year. And so I figured this would be a good job that I wouldn't necessarily get kind of wrapped up in for the rest of my life. It had a final point where they were going to move and I was going to go back to college, back to life. And as the story goes, um, I ended up moving to Ghana with that family. I ended up you know, learning specifically fluency-based procedures teaching, ABA, loving it, loving the connection and the fun that we had. My background had been in summer camps and playing with kids. And so a lot of our time was spent, we went kayaking together. We'd go, we went to the playground all the time. We went rock climbing together, this kid and I. And so, you know, it was just, it was so much fun. It was such a fun year. And so I thought, yeah, sure. I can move to Ghana with these guys. And what I love about this is that I was there to help this kid adjust to the culture. 
I had never left the country. I don't know where we got the idea that I was going to somehow help with this transition, this adjustment. What I learned instead is that, first of all, pretty much everything I know in life, certainly up to that point, I had learned from this kid, which was really, really amazing. And when I arrived in Ghana, people started coming to my house, coming to the school where I was working, coming to the gym where I could very occasionally be found, looking for the lady who knew what autism was. What were the attitudes of autism in Ghana at that time? It really depended. First of all, most of the people looking for me, their child had been diagnosed while living abroad and they were now back in Ghana. So they were sort of in the know. They knew some other families. I remember we did a a newspaper article a few months into it, maybe even a few weeks. And the title of the article was not possessed, just different. And Mm -hmm. I just remember being like, well, you know, of course, what, you know, what is this article? What is this title about? But it turned out that that was the right title for that article. And a lot of people read it. And then, you know, as I was asked to do more kind of appearances and things like that, that was really the number one thing is that they wanted me to say, hey, these kids aren't possessed. And the locally accepted belief is that they were possessed, that it was mm -hmm. that someone would put a curse on the family, on the child. What would happen to the kids when they were thought to be possessed? I mean, it's, it's grim and it can run anything from a harmless exorcism in a church to, you know, in the worst cases, death. I was in West Africa probably about four or five years ago now and met a mom who wanted to float her child down the river because she learned that if you float your child down the river, then the demons will, will come out. And then on the other side, I met parents who really believed that anything was possible for their kid with autism, who completely disregarded this idea that the kid is possessed. They certainly came up against it every day, but they were really taking a stand for, no, this is, you know, this is autism. I remember in the early days, some of the kids in Ghana had shirts that said, I have autism. What's your excuse or something? It was like, you know, (laughs) a very kind of in your face, this is autism. We're here to stay kind of thing. And, you know, I think it's interesting because it's easy to look at that interpretation of autism and say like, oh my gosh, who would think that? But if you look at the U.S. this side of 50 years ago, we also were blaming autism on moms. Granted, moms who went to college, not necessarily who put a curse on the child, but it's not dissimilar to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And what it really, what I learned is that it really had to do with just a fear, you know? And I also learned very early on that I was not going to be the one to dispel, you know, I don't, I don't know what causes autism either, you know? And so people would say to me, oh, but is he possessed? And I would just say, you know, talk to me about what he likes to do. What kinds of things does he enjoy? You know, we just kind of redirect and have mm-hmm. that conversation instead. And what I know is that if my primary message had been these kids aren't possessed, I would have hit a wall. Really, it was more about potential and possibility. And, you know, it becomes a little bit more challenging to believe that the child's possessed when the child is able to communicate, when the child is able to express their wants. You know, and I remember just starting with asking, oh, what does he like to do? And they would say, oh, he's fine. You know, he's fine. Um, In Ghana, there's kind of the main house. And then there's what's called the boys quarters where the help lives. And in several cases, I learned that the kid with autism was living in the boys quarters. They were sort of, you know, just kind of don't mind him. He's over there. In fact, one of the uh, kids who went to school with the kid I was working with in Ghana 
told me, you know, Auntie Molly, my brother has autism. And I was like, oh, how great. Where does he go to school? What does he do? You know, and I just thought, oh, I can't wait to meet your your mom and learn more about it. And, you know, when I first learned there was autism in Ghana, I felt like, oh, this is so great. I'm going to learn so much more because I've been working basically with this one kid in the U.S. And, um, quickly learned that just having come from the U.S., having had minimal experience with autism, I was going to be viewed as the local expert. And because of the incredible parents and professionals I was meeting and my total lack of understanding around the culture, and not for lack of wanting to understand, but I'm never going to be Ghanaian. I'm never going to grow up with the belief that these people are possessed. And that's a really, really important distinction, I think. So, you know, I really got in the first two years of the organization when I lived in Ghana that my role really is going to be to collaborate, to listen, to learn. You know, now we tie it up in a neat little bow and we say, oh, we have a very Socratic approach. Um, what that Socratic approach was when I was 23 living in Ghana is I didn't know either. So everything I did, I asked, you know, <laughs> oh, what about this? Could he maybe this? Could he maybe that? You know, so the other thing is when I was in Ghana and learning what was happening in Ghana, I felt like surely there's an organization that's going to come to Ghana that's going to provide training. There's got to be. What you, mm-hmm. Of course there is. You know, I had just learned about this concept of NGOs and I thought, oh, let me find the autism NGO. And this, this organization predates Autism Speak. So there were many national organizations, but it wasn't like there was this giant organization to just connect with. And so what I found instead when I went on my dial-up internet connection in West Africa in 2003, or when I went to the fancy internet place that had satellite internet, which is more people around the world looking for the same thing. So I realized pretty quickly that this was sort of one of those, you look around and go, somebody has to do something, right? And then you you realize that there's just like this mirror behind you and you're like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. How did you grow from there? Very slowly, very organically. We messed up a lot. If you come to skill core orientation, the first thing you hear me talk about is, you know, we spent eight years learning what not to do, learning lessons of of humility, of grace, of pushing on. And, you know, it's one of those things where we kept going and kept learning and kept iterating. And I think really, how did we grow? How are we still here? We've never been afraid of failing. And part of that was probably, I was 23 when I started it. So you kind of, there's just some failures that are just going to happen. But I think there's a key difference between not being afraid of failing and really embracing the failure and learning from that failure. And so the way that we grew from there is about seven years later, I think we were connected with somebody in Kenya and she was a Kenyan woman who had spent some time in the U.S., and had returned to Kenya and had on her CV that she had experience with autism. She was a Montessori teacher as well, looking for work. And a mom saw autism on her resume and was like, I need you. I'm hiring you. She literally met some kids with autism at a pool in Kenya um, and started a center. And so you know, this collaborative model, this learning from each other that I had been really working on and sometimes more success than others in Ghana really worked really, really well in Kenya. And so that was really a turning point for us. I think we were talking before the show about, you know, just kind of there's turning points in the history of the organization. And one of them is definitely that partnership in Kenya and what was possible there. So. Mm -hmm. And now we work with 
which other countries in Africa? So we have Kenya. They've just franchised to Tanzania themselves. Uh, Tanzania, exactly. Nigeria, um, and Rwanda. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So exciting. There's so much good happening on that continent right now, partially from people who grew up there originally, came to the U.S., have kids with autism and support efforts there. There's a lot of that goodness happening. There's a lot of professionals who are originally from different parts of Africa who are giving back. There's a lot of great stuff happening, and it's so cool to see. How has the understanding of autism changed in Ghana since you were there? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I remember we were there in 08, which was five years after we'd started there. And I remember talking to a taxi driver and letting him know that we work with the children who are autistic. You know, and I'd been saying that since 2003, every time I got into a taxi and oftentimes they say, oh, do they paint? Do they draw? Oh, my cousin does that. He's a sculptor hearing artistic instead of autistic. And I remember in 08 saying that to a cab driver and he said, oh, yes, I know about these children. They're the ones, you know, who are, they're not deaf and dumb, but they have some trouble speaking. And I was like, yes, you know, and I immediately wished that we had canvassed <laughs> all cab drivers, um, that the cab driver test was a, was a valid way of measuring because I definitely saw a shift in that. And you know, the thing to know about the incredible work happening in Ghana is it's led by a mom who had spent some time in the U.S., went to Ghana and knew that something better was available for her kid and just built it and built it and built it and built an incredible community. I remember when I first got to the center there, they didn't want the word autism on the wall at all. They were nervous about what could happen if people knew these kids were there. It was really more of a safe space for kids. And now it's just it's amazing. It's, it's incredible. You know, you see pictures of what's going on there and the awareness has just increased so much. And I've since met many other people from Ghana. It's always interesting because I meet someone who has a four or five-year-old and I think like, oh, where were you when I started this? I'm like, oh, right. You were also in your twenties without a kid. Got it. Um, but there's such awesome stuff going on. And I think, you know, what's been really inspiring to see too, is that the government has started paying more attention because I remember going to the minister of health, telling him that, oh, you know, I'm here and I work with kids with autism and I'd love to collaborate with you. And they said, no, 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 we don't have autism here. And I was sort of like, no, you do. Oh, let me show you, you know. And I sort of, oh, okay, I get it. You don't. Got mm -hmm. it. So, you know, and years later, you have the government of Ghana saying this is a priority, this is important. And I think whether they even know it or not, what's happening in Ghana is influencing change all over the continent. You know, a lot of people are looking to what they've accomplished there. So it's pretty awesome. It's really amazing. And it's it's always fun to look back on where things were and where they are today. And it's mm -hmm different for sure. Mm -hmm. So the turning point that you had when you partnered with Kenya. Yeah. When was that? What year was that? I thought you might ask that question. I think it's 2020 now. Mm -hmm. I think it was 10. I think it was nine or 10, 2009 or 2010. Okay. So 10 or 11 years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you say it was a turning point for the organization. Did more partners start reaching out for support? How did that spread to the 19 countries that we've been now? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not entirely sure how that happened. Um, yes. So I think it was really a turning point in that what we had set out to do was to provide training. And, you know, we didn't have the funding at the time to actually physically get to Kenya 
And so the training was happening over a computer, much like the one I'm on right now, you know, and I remember I'd hold up the standard acceleration chart to the video camera and say, you know, oh, can you see it? Okay. Okay. Oh, it froze. Okay. Let me, I'll move <laughs> tell me when it's, oh, it's moving. Okay, great. So you see that line? I mean, it was just, good. and you know, what was amazing about it is that every time we got on the phone, they were building on what we had done last time and the business was building and there were more kids coming and there were more staff coming. And it was just, it really, I think it really inspired us to get that this is really possible. This is really working and this is really changing lives. You know, I'll never forget a call I had with our first partner in Kenya. And I said, well, as always, you're doing an incredible job. I'm so impressed with everything you're up to. And, you know, and I sort of expected her to be like, okay, thank you. Have a good night. And she was like, really? And I was like, oh my gosh, yes, <laughs> you're doing amazing work. You know, you're, you're looking at, you're looking at fluency versus mastery. You're, you know, you're doing this really cool stuff. And, um, my gosh, like you have, you know, you have all these new kids. It's, you know, and I just realized in that moment that the work of the global autism project was going to have very little to do with the clinical work, was going to have very little to do even with the business training. The work of the Global Autism Project was that relationship, was somebody on the other side of that computer saying, I believe in you, you've got this, I'm impressed with you, somebody else holding that possibility with you. Um, mm. And I think that that was sort of a turning point too, when I realized that, oh, what we're doing here is we're building relationships that are going to create endless possibilities for people. Mm -hmm. And a community. Yeah. Last year we had our first I know. Uh, global summit. Could you talk a little bit about what that was and what it was like for you as the founder of this organization, bringing everyone together? Oh gosh. It's, um, it's, it's very emotional to talk about it now, just knowing where we are in the world right now and knowing that when we created that, we created an annual event. It was going to be an annual event. Everyone was going to come together. And I guess COVID-19 had other plans. But yeah, I'm going to go all the way back to 2019 before this world we live in now. It was probably one of the most amazing, beautiful, impactful moments we've ever had as an organization. It was the Global Summit. We brought together partners from every continent that we worked with. Most of our partners were there. We had skill core members. We had other supporters of our community. We had 80-something people there. And what we had set out to do was to not just create another conference. This was not about a conference. This was about an experience. We had an improv teacher there. We had mindfulness training. We had yoga. We had, I mean, it was just really an experience to bring people together. And I can honestly say without that event, we would all not be weathering COVID-19 as well as we are right now. Because mm -hmm. what became possible when people got to get into space with each other and they got to collaborate with each other and they got to laugh together and cry together. I mean, it was kind of this roller coaster of three days of amazing. And, you know, for me, it was wild. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was a wild few days. I remember at one point I was standing, we were in this very cool space. Bali's beautiful, as we all know. We'll link to the video maybe in the notes. But um, mm -hmm. I remember looking down and there was a workout happening and there was a deep conversation happening and there was a workshop happening in the 
um, I can't remember what it's called, that covered area kind of further out in the lawn. I remember just seeing it and being like, this is incredible. And I also, as I often do, started to think of the bigger vision and, oh my gosh, what about when this is 10 times larger? What about when this community is even bigger? Because what was happening there was really transformational. I mean, people walked into that event, one person, and they walked out of that event, another, in terms of how they saw themselves, how they saw the world, how they saw community. We had people join us who had found the website and just happened to join us. And we're all in a WhatsApp group still. And it's one (laughs) of the more active WhatsApp groups. I have never in my life been in a WhatsApp group with everyone at a conference and stayed in communication like this. Um, (laughs) And it's just been, it was so cool to know that what we have to offer here supports not only our partners and our organization and our SkillCore family, but people who run businesses here in the U.S. as well. So Mm I actually, the other day was just looking at that video and it's just, mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that we have that video to, to go back mm-hmm. there and be reminded of it, but it was a really special event and it really felt like the catalyst for the like kind of global autism project 2.0, you know, mm-hmm. so, um, yeah. Something that sticks out for me from that experience is the day that we did the partner showcase. Yes. And I remember to prepare for that, we asked all of our partners to create a poster that they can share, celebrating something that they have accomplished at their centers. And it was so cool just thinking about all the passion that was in that room. They all set up their posters and we did it kind of like an open forum style where people can walk around and for some centers that had more than one person from their center at the conference, one person stood by the poster and explained while the other one walked around and then they would switch so each person could have a chance to see everyone's. But it was so cool to hear the conversations between them, learning from each other, and that they were feeling empowered from sharing their own stories. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, They brought a dessert from their country. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they right, yeah. Dessert. <laughs> mm-hmm. just, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was so cool. It was mm-hmm. so fun. And it was, you know, there was a lot of translation happening too. It was amazing. I mean, it was such a fun, we were so ready to do it again and mm-hmm. we will be again. Um, but it was such a fun event. It was mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned that there were some skill core members there too, which was great for them to see the partners again. Yeah partners that they had visited on their volunteer trips. Yeah. Could you explain a little bit about what SkillCore is for our listeners who are not familiar? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're sort of, I feel like we have this theme of turning points, maybe because we're, we're right on the edge of one right now. But SkillCore was a game changer for us. Our first SkillCore trips happened in 2012. You know, up until then, I had really felt pretty strongly that we were never going to be one of those organizations that sends people out. We were never going to engage in this kind of voluntourism where it's more for the person going than the people in the community. And I had heard kind of my final horror story about this kind of voluntourism where someone went in, did something they were completely not trained to do. And I remember Pooja, our partner in Kenya, was actually at my apartment in Brooklyn. We were on our way to the ABAI conference. And it was late Tuesday night. And we said, you know, 
this is really a problem. We don't have enough people to do the training. You know, it's really hard to get people to just kind of take time off and travel with us. We don't have the funding to support it. And then on the other hand, we said, well, what if there are enough people? And what if there is enough? You know, I think that that's something that over the course of this organizational history, I've sort of gone, well, what if there is enough? What if we have plenty? And then it, and then you're able to think in a different way. Again, no borders, right? You can put this boundary on what's possible or you can go, okay, or, or what if there's plenty and what if we're fine? Um, and so we decided and we knew that there were plenty of people, there were plenty of people who wanted to be a part of this work. We were seeing that. And so that Tuesday night, we decided to call it Skill Corps. We hired someone in India because it was daytime in India to create a brochure. We didn't have a design person at the time. We got that brochure created midnight. We overnighted brochures to the ABAI conference in Seattle. And I'd been standing there for years saying, are you familiar with the Global Autism Project? Do you know the Global Autism Project? <laughs> and this time I was handing out flyers saying, are you familiar with Skill Corps? And people were saying, oh, yes, absolutely. And I was, oh, are you? That's funny. Because <laughs> made it up. But what Skill Corps is, is it's an opportunity for professionals, self-advocates, people connected either with a personal or professional connection to autism to come and travel with us and actually provide meaningful training to our partner sites. So it is also one of the most amazing, and I'm seeing it over and over again, people are reaching out. It is one of the most amazing personal and professional development opportunities out there in the entire world. And I think we talk about that transformation that happened in Global Summit, Skill Course, two weeks of that. And it completely changes who people know themselves to be, what they think is possible for themselves. And what you do is you apply. Everybody who travels raises $5,000. That gets a lot of people outside their comfort zone, of course. That also allows us to stay in communication with the partner sites so that we can provide ongoing support and training so that the work that they do when they're in country is not just that's it. And who knows, you know, we talk about the flyaway test a lot and people travel with us for two weeks at a time. And it's really, it's just, um, my gosh, like I can't imagine again weathering this COVID 19 storm without our Skill Corps community. The Skill Corps community is the lifeblood of this organization. We have over 600 alums now, and it's just really, really, really incredible people. We actively recruit for diversity, we actively recruit for professional diversity. We really believe that somebody who has a little bit of experience in the field has a whole lot of insight, and there's a lot to be learned both ways. And we believe that speech therapists and OTs and PTs and BCBAs and ABA therapists can all learn from each other when given the right container. And autistic self-advocates, it's a really important piece for us. We have autistic self-advocates on teams as well. And you have these people who work in the field with kids with autism mostly, and they've never met an adult with autism. And now not only are they meeting an adult with autism, they're not just going to some inspirational talk. They're actually collaborating, living day in and day out, learning more about what does that really look like day to day? You know, we've had adults, autistic employees for 10 years or something now. And I am always, always, always so grateful for their insight. You know, I think that you can see very clearly limitations in some of the teaching when you see an adult and what that looks like. And so that's a really important piece for us too. And then we've had parents of kids with autism travel, which our partners 
always really appreciate, you know, and, and what it does again, it's kind of back to that relationship, right? The clinical training is of course, important and valuable. The administrative training is of course, important and valuable, but really what happens is every, every, every single application we get for partnership from countries around the world talks about how lonely they are. And that's what we get to help with when our partners don't feel lonely and they don't feel like they're the only ones and they don't feel like it's an uphill battle and they learn from each other. And that learning happens both ways. You know, people often leave skill core and I've learned so much, you know, mm-hmm. and not only about the work, um, but they've learned so much about themselves and I'm sort of obsessed with that. And I think that when you can learn about yourself, when you can gain insight into who you are and what you want, what you can create is limitless. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We have a special episode dedicated to our skill core alum. Yeah. So right. listeners can tune into that. We have Andrew Bennett, who's a self-advocate yeah, and Jesse Sheehan, who is a school psychologist and Brittany Pei, who practices ABA. She's a BCBA and she also works with dogs. So so it's a really interesting conversation that we have that people can tune into. Yeah, that's awesome. You could literally run an entire podcast on skill course stories and (laughs) what people have the transformation that's happened for them, what they've created in their lives. You know, I got an email and this is not the first one like this that I've gotten. And somebody mentioned that they had had a really traumatic childhood. And for many years, they've been afraid even to leave their own house. And now not only are they leaving their house, they're leading trips for us all over the world. They're bringing people out. And it's not the first email like that I've gotten. You know, there's been a number of people who this has really been a turning point for them. It's one of those things where, you know, it takes you out of your everyday life. There's some value in that, right? It takes you out of what you know to be true every single day. It takes you out of the stories around, you know, all the people around you. It takes you out of people's expectations. We actively not only recruit for diversity, but put people on teams with people they've never met. And we were very deliberate in that because we really want people to have an opportunity to be who they can be, not who they know themselves to be. And even the people who are resistant to that at first, they're like, that was the best part. That was so important, you know? Mm -hmm. So it is really cool. Yeah. It was a turning point for me, for sure. I volunteered in 2018 that summer. I went to Uganda. Yeah. And I was just so hooked on the mission. I still am. (laughs) Didn't turn back. (laughs) But I did learn so much about myself and who I can be as a leader. And it gave me more confidence to express myself. I learned how to collaborate in very stressful situations. You know, you're dorming with someone dorming, you're rooming with someone. Um, It felt like college really (laughs) (laughs) because it's a stranger and you're forced to adapt and stretch those comfort zones for the better. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people have reached out and told me about how their skill core experience has served them so well to keep their wits about them during COVID-19. How so? You know, in a lot of different ways, first of all, clinically, right? So learning how to really, they're all of a sudden clinicians are now working remotely. Now getting buy-in from parents cannot be an afterthought. Now that's the primary objective. 
That's mm-hmm. the primary objective. And we talk a lot about how buy-in isn't enough. You really need ownership. And there's such an opportunity right now with all that's going on for parents to take a different level of ownership of their kids' experience. And, you know, so they've been talking a lot about that, about how a lot of the techniques and things that we've taught in order to create ownership is working really well. Some people have said, you know, I was realizing even when I was just talking, it takes you out of your daily life and gives you that opportunity for reflection. And you brought up, it's really challenging, you know? And so I think that... COVID-19 has done that, you know, and it's funny, I left New York City and when I was packing, it was, it was very similar to, I might run out of toothpaste. Hmm. I might run, you know, sort of all those years of international travel really served me well and packing up and leaving 45 minutes later, you know, um, but certainly just being outside of your comfort zone, knowing that there's an opportunity here. We talk all the time about what is here for me to learn. You know, when people are challenged in the field, we say, you know, this is an opportunity to step back and say, what is here for me to learn? Maybe what's here for me to learn is I don't like being told what to do. Maybe what's here for me to learn is I can be bossy. Maybe what's here for me to learn is... Um, and we've been talking a lot about that as a team right now throughout this, that this is an opportunity for us. And so mm-hmm. if we kind of step back and say, what is here for me to learn, that shifts our perspective entirely. And you do a lot of that at Skillcore, a lot of shifting your perspective. You know, it's hot. You've been in the car for 17 hours. Yes, you're going to see the Taj Mahal and that's amazing, but it's hot. You've been in the car for 17 hours, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so, so um, just getting comfortable, not only with those areas that aren't comfortable, but also with uncertainty. So yeah. much is uncertain in international travel. And I think that, you know, our team is weathering this exceptionally well, I think partially because we've dealt with uncertainty on some level, certainly not on global pandemic level, but there's uncertainty in the work that we do and in the outcomes. And so a lot of people have reflected on that as well, that just being comfortable, being uncomfortable and embracing uncertainty and not knowing all the steps and all the next things that are going to happen all the time has mm-hmm. served them well. So I'm, I'm really glad. <laughs> yeah. So while we're on topic of COVID-19, could you share how you were forced to respond quickly back in February? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, we're recording this on World Autism Awareness Day, April 2nd, 2020, and a day that we've historically trips have been back. We've been at the UN. You know, we run our trips in February, July, and October. We run three times a year. And we first heard of COVID-19, obviously, in China in January. I was watching it very, very closely. We have partners in China. They were immediately impacted. They were quarantined in their home. And one of the things from the start of this is that those are my friends and colleagues in China. So it never felt like this is something happening to those people over there. It felt like this is happening to our family. This is happening to our friends. This is happening to our colleagues. And so I think I had a little bit of a sort of a closer relationship. And I was watching, you know, I'm familiar with exponential growth. I was watching the curve. I'm trying to think of what the date was. It was probably the last day of January. And I just sort of started thinking, we don't know what country this is going to next. This is obviously leaving China. Um, And I think there had been a few cases in other places in Southeast Asia. And I began to just think about disease transmission and possibility of a pandemic and thought, I'm about to put 75 people on airplanes to 15 different countries. And 
no one's canceled travel yet. No travel had been canceled except for to China. We'd obviously canceled our China trips at that point. But what if we contributed to the spread in some way? Because this has the possibility to become a global pandemic. That was very clear to me when I was watching the growth. And so again, no one had canceled travel. It was the Saturday before teams arrive on Tuesday. Some people are already in New York because they make the most of it, come to New York City. And I had to make a call that I knew would completely impact our financial standing as an organization. And that became the last thing I cared about, honestly. The very last thing I cared about was where we were financially. The only thing I cared about in that moment was people's health and safety. And I knew that there was a possibility of contributing to the spread of this. I knew that there was a possibility of somebody being in a country, being quarantined. I just, there were too many of those sort of unknown things as a country. We weren't really paying a huge amount of attention to this. And so again, people are already in New York, people are on their way, suitcases are packed for the most part the weekend before. For a lot of people, they've never left the country who travel with us on Skill Corps. And so this is a very big deal. And we made some phone calls, sent out an email, and we said, we've canceled the trips. And our first thought was we would postpone, which thankfully we would not because we thought late April, early May, and obviously no one's traveling now. But it was one of those decisions where you had to go gosh, this feels like a really hard decision. Wait a minute. No. What do I value above all else? People's health and safety. Okay. This is an easy decision. Mm -hmm. This is easy. This is easy. We have to work out the logistics of it. We have no idea what it's going to look like. At the time, airlines weren't doing anything about it. People were mostly understanding. I did get an email from one person who was going to be meeting her boyfriend in Italy afterwards. And she said, you know, obviously Italy is going to be fine, which as we now know, Italy was mm-hmm. not fine. And so, you know, about a week after making that decision, Amazon canceled going to their big thing they were going to in Spain or whatever, you know, and then things started getting canceled. But it was one of those moments where it was not the popular decision. Um, no one else was canceling things on this at this degree. Now it feels very normal that everything's getting canceled. And I remember thinking it's either going to feel really normal and everything's going to get canceled or we're going to have overreacted and I have to be equally okay with either. Mm-hmm. And I am. We now know we did not overreact, but it was not a popular decision. It was not a decision that I ever thought I'd have to make. It was not a decision that we had a contingency plan for. We have contingency plans for canceling some trips. Of course we do. We don't have a contingency plan for all of our trips at once. So I think what it really was though, is it was decisive action. It was what I know leadership to be, which is at some point you have to get silent and you have to trust your gut and you have to come back to what's the most important thing right now, health and safety above all else. I honestly didn't know how the organization was going to continue with that loss of a third of the revenue. I really didn't. And now here we are two months later to the day actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've now had to cancel all of our trips for the year. And we've now had to cancel Global Summit. And in this exact moment, we honestly don't know how we're rebuilding from this. We know that we will. We know that it'll be better than we ever imagined. We know that this is the greatest opportunity we've ever been handed as an organization. But none of that matters right now. What matters to me is that my team is safe and healthy. That's what matters. And so I think that 
when there are those hard decisions, they become hard because you're weighing too many things. And I get it. As a CEO, you have to weigh things. But there comes a point where you have to go, but what is the most important thing? What is the most important thing? And we've had to have this decision. You know, this is a global pandemic. This is impacting the entire world. This is no longer something that those people over there are dealing with. This is something that's in our backyard. This is something all of our partners are dealing with. We had a phone call with all of our partners yesterday, and one of them couldn't join because it was her day to go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. It all relate to that from all over the world yeah. for the first time ever. And what's interesting about this particular thing is I compare it a little bit, you know, with our family of autism service providers all over the world, the network that we have, we look at autism today versus autism 40 years ago in the U.S. And we say, oh, isn't that nice? That happened 20 years ago here. We can learn from that. We don't get to do that with this. This Mm -hmm. happened two months ago. This happened four months ago. We're all on this learning curve together. And so, you know, I think that there's something really powerful and really beautiful about kind of going through this all together as a team. But it also means everyone is trying to do the best they can with what they have and figure it out. And, you know, with all of our partners who have had to make the decision to close down the center, which I think is all of them now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have all. Wow. Um, Because, yeah, yesterday during the call that we had, you know, some of them are having to let go of their staff too. And they're trying to get innovative with the way they're delivering their services now. And, you know, it was really inspiring to hear about how they've all handled the situation. Like the head teacher at Silver Bells is building a parent support group through WhatsApp. Michael, the director from U plus in China has created an app (laughs) to share videos of what they're working on with their kids. And you mentioned yesterday during the call, about their resourcefulness. Could you share that again? Yeah. You know, it it is interesting because I've been obviously here in the U.S. working with business owners here in the U.S. and Facebook groups and things and people have reached out. And I think what has been so awesome about watching our partners go through this is one, they're completely going through it together they're a family, they're a team, they're supporting each other. In that call yesterday, we had some breakout groups where they talked in smaller groups. We're very, very fluent in video conferencing here at the (laughs) project, which has been amazing. But they were able to collaborate with each other, to learn from each other. And it's just been so fascinating to see how this global community, they're used to not having all the resources all the time. They're used to maybe a higher level of uncertainty. They're used to not having all the resources all the time. They're used to maybe a higher level of uncertainty. And it's serving them really, really well right now. None of them, none of them are in the space of, oh, why me? How is this happening? None of them. They have bypassed that step entirely. They are now on, let's take action. Let's make this happen. This is possible. We have everything we need. And I think it's just been so, so amazing to watch them do that. And, you know, and they're, they're having to lay staff off in a place where there's no such thing as unemployment. They're having to make some huge decisions, but they are being strong leaders. They are standing by what they know is right. You know, there, a lot of them are in countries where if COVID-19 takes hold, it, it's going to be even more devastating um, mm-hmm. just because of a lack of resources and equipment. And they're taking responsibility for that. And they're, they're really doing their part. But oh my gosh, they're, yeah, they're in WhatsApp groups with parents. They're sending videos home. Some parents don't have internet access and they're calling them every day and texting them and making sure. And 
what they know is most important is that people don't feel alone and desperate right now. And it's one of those things where what really matters, right? Mm -hmm. And we talk a lot in Skill Core about what's essential, what's preferable, and what's preferable to me. What's preferable to me is that the center's open and we're running all of our programs and whatever. You know, what's preferable is that we're at least running programs. What's essential right now is that people don't feel alone and they don't feel desperate. That's what's Mm -hmm. essential. We can figure out the rest. And even with our organization, what's essential right now is that my staff is safe and healthy. We can figure out the rest. Mm -hmm. And what I know about crisis is that it brings out the very best in people. And that if you're doing what you know to be right in that moment, and you have a crystal clear look at what's your, not even your North Star, but your your anchor point, like what anchors all of it? None of this matters if we don't have our health. Mm-hmm. And they get that on a very, very big level. And we get that as an organization, you know, and I think just things are not ideal if you were to look at it on paper, but everyone's making the most of it. And mm-hmm. it's so amazing. And we'll hear stories from our partners and how they're handling the crisis at their centers yeah. on various episodes in this podcast. I've already yeah. recorded one with Michael from U Plus in China. Right. And Moffer from Centro Enigma in Ecuador. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear about how our partners are responding internationally when there are a lot of ABA centers in the U.S. who are struggling with having to make this decision too. And yeah. we hear from our community of Skill Corps who are still having to work direct hours, who are out in the field because their work is considered essential mm-hmm. as a medical necessity. What are your thoughts on that? And do you have any advice for ABA business owners who might be facing this decision right now? Yeah, definitely. So first of all, I think an important thing to know is that some ABA is absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential. There are cases where we're worried about people harming themselves or others. There are cases where they can only administer medicine if there's somebody there to provide that support. There's all kinds of cases where it's absolutely essential. You know, I think if the work you're doing is not necessarily essential, and by essential, I think it's important to have that, is it life or death? Is it life or death? Because the reality is right now, the risk that we're taking on by going in and out of people's homes, even if it's the same person going to the same home, they're still getting in their car, they're still pumping gas, they're probably still getting food somewhere. It's a life or death situation. It really, really is. And I think, you know, for the business owner who's struggling with that, I think you just go back to the health and safety of your staff and you've got to have this just unwavering trust that it's going to work out. It's going to work out. This is a global pandemic. We're going to have to figure out something as a global community structurally to carry on, you know, and I think that just trusting that it's going to work out. And listen, I have zero evidence that it's going to work out, but what I know is that it's going to work out. (laughs) And I really Mm -hmm. believe you have to, you have to believe it to see it. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing is that I would say to business owners is that please don't see this for anything other than what it is, which is the biggest opportunity we've ever been handed. This is the biggest opportunity we've ever been handed. We can create whatever we need to create. And, you know, for me, it came down to, we were trying to innovate our way out of this. We're very entrepreneurial as an organization. Um, We said, oh, we can't go to China. Okay. We can go to these places. Oh, we can't travel internationally. Okay. We can do something domestically. Oh, we can't. 
oh, we can't gather as a group. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're canceling everything. Um, And it felt like I could be on this never ending treadmill for the next six months with my team of trying to figure it out, figure it out, figure it out. Or we could take a pause. Everyone could take a break and we could see this for the opportunity that it is. And I have found, and we've talked about as a team, it was the right decision. Mm -hmm. It really was. We're still a team. We have our weekly happy hours, you know, (laughs) we stay in communication with each other. This is an opportunity. And I think the second that you can stop seeing it as a crisis or you can see it as a crisis all you want. And also it's an opportunity, Um, you know, and I think the the two can coexist for sure, but that's Mm -hmm. really how I see it. All right, Molly, we're going to have to wrap up here in a little bit, but just wanted to close with this last question of what possibilities you envision for the organization for the rest of 2020. Yeah, what a what a fun question to ask a CEO who has just um, <laughs> who has just uh, you know laid laid off a, a staff, and um, you know uh, we now have our revenue this year because we've canceled all of our trips is down to zero, and so you know I think an easy answer. It would be easy to say like there are none, but I don't think that at all. I think that we're starting from a completely blank slate. We're getting to take a collective inhale and exhale as a team, as a community. I really think the possibilities for us right now are absolutely endless. We're down to nothing but our heads and hearts, you know, and I think that just seeing how the team has stuck together through all of this. I mean, you're still running this podcast, you know, I mean, people have been incredible. And I think that what's possible is a deeper connection and more success, whatever that means than we've ever experienced. I think that what's possible is a closer community. I think that we're already seeing it. I mean, I'm hearing from Skill Corps members I haven't heard from for a few years who are talking about the impact Skill Corps made on their lives. I think that when we kind of all get stripped down to we're home all day and what really matters, what we find is that what matters are the relationships and the people that we have. And I just think that from that place, from that place of nothing, we create anything. And it's super exciting. I have no idea. I feel like we have to do a follow-up in a year. (laughs) I have no idea what's next. And I'm so excited by that. I really, really am. The reality is the 17 years of work is not going to disappear. It's a foundation that we now get to build on. And we get to build from a place of absolute nothingness. And so what's possible for us as an organization, anything and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to see what's in store. Molly, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And we'll attach all of the links to the show notes. People can watch the beautiful video from Global Summit yeah, to get some inspiration. <laughs> Enjoy it. Yeah. Thank Thank you you so much for the work you're doing for this podcast. It's so exciting. It's so timely. I love it. I love that people are home needing something to listen to. And we happen to have this podcast that's been in the works for the last few months. So (laughs) all works out. All right. Thanks, Molly. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Autism Knows No Borders. I hope from hearing Molly's episode, you have gained a better understanding of our mission at the Global Autism Project, and perhaps even a new perspective on what's crucial in these days of uncertainty. 
tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. Thanks for listening. Take care. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.